This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. This reading is from the book of the prophet Amos, chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. The prophet writes, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. This is the word of the Lord. The next reading is from the first epistle of Paul to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In the Church Bible, it's page 1163. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now let us rise to hear the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, beginning at the first verse of the 16th chapter. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I can't dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down, quickly write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 
a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your, your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, come to you. And Lord, we uh, desire to be your disciples. We desire to follow you. We desire to know those benefits, those blessings, and those challenges of uh, being your student, sitting at your feet, learning from you. Help us, we pray, Lord. Give us, give us desire and empower us by your Holy Spirit to be faithful disciples, to start, uh, to finish, rather, what we have started, and to use all that you've given us, Lord, for your glory. We ask this for the sake of Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Well, I wasn't planning on preaching today. Um, I wasn't planning on preaching up until a few minutes ago. <clears throat> but, you know, we have a, a really interesting passage uh, in front of us, Luke chapter 16, uh, the parable of the dishonest estate manager, uh, the parable that a, a parable that has confounded commentators uh, and caused preachers to do somersaults for generations, if not even centuries. I mean, how do you explain this? Here, is it really true that Jesus is commending dishonesty? Um, is it really true that Jesus is, is uh, praising this guy who, um, who cheats in a, in a huge way? And of course, the preaching over the centuries especially since the time of the Reformation, I'm not sure what happened before the Reformation, is simply excused his dishonesty and focused on how clever and creative uh, he was in providing for his pension, providing for, <clears throat> and of course, in a day of failing pension funds, and uh, in the case of the United States, where Social Security apparently is gonna go bust and run out of money, you know, this, this certainly might be an alternative that uh, some of you are probably considering. I, I, you know, I'd advise you not to do it, but... <coughs> so 
how do we understand this parable? And I think really the, the only alternative that's open for us is to understand this in, a, in, in its Jewish first century context. And here I apologize to uh, my uh, friends from Uganda because over the last few days they've heard some of this before, but I trust the summary will not uh, uh, be in any way distracting and will be helpful. But that first century Jewish context, to know the world in which Jesus lived, and that world was a very um, a lot spiritually alive world. It was a world that was very uh, creative, and there were many uh, Jewish points of view, not just one Jewish point of view, there are many Jewish points of view, and there, there were many, uh, you might say, streams of Judaism or movements uh, within the Jewish people at this time. I might get into trouble, but uh, maybe the equivalent, see for our day, or what would be equivalent for our day and time, and at least in the Christian world, you have denominations. They all claim to be Jewish, yet they all have a, uh, they certainly all have a different worldview. And Jesus, as he comes along and comes onto the scene, in a way is nurtured by his Jewish world, he's nurtured by his Jewish roots, but he encounters uh, these different Jewish points of view, and in some cases he uh, praises them, or in some cases uh, he goes along with some of their points of view, and in other cases he has a very, very severe critique, a severe critique of... um, the way that these different movements behave, the things that they, they believe, the things that they hold to be valuable. Now, you, you might be thinking, okay, this is going to descend into a history lesson, and there's nothing wrong with history, but it's not, because as I described briefly each one of these movements, you can see that the issues, okay, and the organizing principles of these movements are still with us today, And they're certainly alive in the church. And Jesus, uh, I believe, his voice should be heard across the ages. And uh, we should listen to his critique. So uh, Josephus talks about four main movements that were um, uh, active or uh, alive when uh, when Jesus ministered uh, amongst his people here in this city and in the Galilee. And... um, the one that we know the least about, but the one actually that Jesus probably was the most scathing uh, and perhaps even the harshest uh, was the Sadducees. And this was the religious establishment, the priestly aristocracy. And I'm sure you're thinking, thank goodness I'm not amongst the priestly aristocracy. And thank goodness I'm not the religious establishment. But that wasn't their sin. That wasn't their issue, being in the establishment. Their issue was basically, one, they had bad doctrine. They didn't really fully believe in all the scripture. And they certainly didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in rewards and punishment. They simply believed they were, I guess in a way, they were the grandfathers, grandmothers maybe, of the prosperity gospel. They believed if you're good, 
God would reward you in this world. If you were somehow poor, it's because you were wicked and not righteous. What a horrible, horrible way of thinking. But yet, uh, many people, uh, even to this day around the world, uh, in the church and even outside the church, still somehow believe that, uh, that basic uh, fundamental. But even worse uh, was their uh, corporatism. They had this <coughs> view that certainly would not have been shared by Paul in First Timothy, okay, that things are rotten and there's nothing you can do about it. The system is crooked, yes. The system is in, in some ways um, fixed so that it's not fair. And the only thing that we can possibly do is to join them, is to join the system so that the other guys, the other people, don't get all of the pie. We want our share. And we will prostitute ourselves in any way we have to, okay, in order to make sure that we're taken care of, especially financially. And this is the Sadducees. They're corporatist. You know, the only way to get along is to go along. Swallow your principles, forget your morals, your ethics. And these, by the way, are the deadliest. They, they were. Maybe they still are. The deadliest enemies of the church. They're the ones who ultimately were responsible for crucifying Jesus because they thought Jesus was going to, um, in some way, uh, disrupt the temple, which was their cash cow. Okay? Uh, and so they decided they better get Jesus before somehow he got them. And um, the Pharisees are involved a little bit, but on the whole, it's the Sadducees. And, on the whole, and you might be, might be of interest to you that in the book of Acts, it's not the Pharisees who are the enemies of the church. It's the Sadducees, both in the case of Peter and in the case of Paul. Now, there's another group. We learned a little bit about them yesterday. These are the zealots. These are the people who, you know, the way to solve the problem is basically political, and it's using the point of a sword, or, you know, in the words of Mao Zedong, it's from the barrel of a gun. What we need is revolution now. And those who oppress and those who deny Israel its uh, proper place in God's economy need to be swept away. Uh, whether you're a Gentile or a, a Jew who's uh, aiding and abetting the enemy, the, you need to be killed or you need to be overthrown. And uh, what needs to happen is a revolution. Uh, instant change. We can't wait. And uh, of course, Jesus, in a way, shares with these people, he, he does share this uh, desire, this hunger, uh, this commitment to the kingdom of God, to having God's rulership uh, in, uh, in the world today. Uh, the zealots simply, you know, wanted to impose um, this divine order, and they were going to force everyone to obey the Bible or to obey halakha. 
And, th there, and of course, this was going to be an instant solution to all of the problems of Israel and all the problems of the world. Just like today, many Muslims will tell you we have to have Sharia, Sharia, Sharia. The minute we impose the Sharia law on everybody, it's all going to be wonderful. Nonsense. It's not going to be wonderful because human beings will still be crummy, crappy, broken, miserable sinners. There's no transformation. No transformation. There's no change of the heart. There's no repentance. There's no renewal. There's no growth. There's no maturity. So Jesus opposes these people and he opposes their methods. And of course, later their, their philosophy brought uh, tragedy, tragedy to Israel and the people of Israel. But by the way, there are still people today who are advocating this kind of thing. They're advocating one kind of revolution or another. In my country, in the United States, there are people who are advocating not a violent revolution, but a sexual revolution. Yes, if we can just remove all kinds of old-fashioned sexual restrictions or restrictions on what people should be allowed to do with their body or the way they can express their gender or their sexuality, you know we're going to enter into some kind of paradise. It's all going to be wonderful, taken together with the, the twin child of diversity. You know, we're going to have some wonderful, you know, heaven on earth. My dear friends, it's a lie. What will happen will be increasing confusion and hurt and misery brought to the lives of millions of people. The sexual revolution, like all human revolutions will end in a failure and it will destroy millions of people. The revolution always eats its children and then it starts to eat itself. And you can uh, look at what happened in the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or uh, many places around the world. Okay, I don't want to have to, Jesus condemns and he presents an alternative. And then finally, we get to the, the real issue here. The real issue is that I believe, thanks to the insights of uh, the very brilliant David Flusser from the Hebrew University, um, a Jewish Orthodox man who loved Jesus and loved the Gospels and loved the New Testament and studied the New Testament, he taught his students. He said, actually, what Jesus is doing here is he's criticizing the people who live at Qumran. And I think David Flusser provides the most convincing argument because taken in the context of the whole gospel, it makes the most sense. Now, just a few words about Qumran, where we were yesterday, you know, suffering in the heat. You know, there was a, a movement of a group called the Yahad, or, um, which uh, outsiders called the Essenes. This group lived, had communities around, different communities around the country, Jerusalem, Galilee, uh, and other such places. And in addition, they had a, a mother house. They had a center, okay, down along the shores of the Dead Sea at a place called Qumran. And those who were the most dedicated, you might say the most committed, uh, maybe the most radical, they lived there. 
They lived there. Now, Jesus probably certainly never visited that place, but he heard about these people, or he met some of their associates who practiced a, practiced a milder form of, of asceticism. Maybe he met them in Jerusalem. Maybe he met them in Galilee. And Jesus with this group would share some uh, interesting um, uh, things in common. For example, uh, their uh, appreciation of the Holy Spirit, a very high pneumatology. Um, and yet, at the same time, uh, Jesus had some very, very severe words and severe criticism for this group at Qumran. Now again, you might be thinking, well, we're nothing like that. They were a bunch of weirdos. They were really odd. They didn't marry, you know, they believed in uh, extreme double predestination. I'm, I have nothing in common with them. But actually, we might be surprised because many of us do share uh, something in common with them, and it's the very thing that Jesus wants to be the most critical of. In the text that we read, there are two terms. There are two terms which really kind of tell us, according to Professor Flusser, that uh, Jesus is talking about this group. The first is the children of light. That's a term that they used about themselves. They called themselves the children of light. And everybody else, they were children of darkness. Yes, they were children of darkness. You ever heard it said, we're the only group that's got the truth? Yes, everybody else can't be, in some extremes, can't be saved. Everybody else can't be saved. No one else may be going to heaven because they don't believe like we do. Yes, well, it gets even better. So children of light, yes. And then uh, we read the term, um, you know, unrighteous mammon or mammon of unrighteousness. And mammon of unrighteousness was also a term used at Qumran to talk about money, outside money, money that belonged to people who weren't believers like them. And of course, what is the point of the parable? Not that Jesus is praising, you know, the, the, um, somehow pra praising the children of darkness. Actually, Jesus is condemning the children of light because why? Because they lived in total isolation. They refused to have anything to do with the outside world. They had a happy kind of Christian commune, if you want to put it. They were a very smug kind of church in which, you know, they loved each other. It was phenomenal the way they loved each other. You know, Philo and Pliny and other writers came and observed the brotherhood and the commitment that they had one for another. It was unheard of in the ancient world. But they hated outsiders. If you weren't in their group, if you didn't believe like them, they hated you. You were on your road, you were on the road to hell and you were their enemy. By the way, you, you have um, uh, read 
you certainly have read the verse in which Jesus says in the Matthew 5, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, who said that? Okay. We, from everything we know, and by the way, we, we know a lot about the first century and the time in which Jesus lived. No Jewish group said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, except one, the people at Qumran. The people at Qumran said there should be everlasting hatred for those who don't think like me, who are not in my group, who are not in our clique, who are not in our denomination. And of course, Jesus is to uh, condemn this, but of course, Jesus says to you, but Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And of course, Jesus goes on to tell us why we should do this. Um, he says, for he makes his son arise on evil and on good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what uh, do you uh, do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? You shall be whole, complete, mature. Yes, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the words of Jesus. That's, by the way, it's another condemnation. There's probably a third condemnation when uh, these people, the only, the only folks who could be invited into their group, into the group, uh, would be those who were physically perfect because they understood themselves to be some kind of, to be priests in some kind of way. So if you, if you were missing a finger or something was wrong with your face physically or uh, there was a, uh, some kind of defect, physical defect, you were not allowed to join the group. What does Jesus say? Jesus says when you give a banquet, who should you invite? Those who are blind and lame and crippled. And it's also a critique of this group. And by the way, you want, Jesus wants us to invite the blind, the lame, and the crippled because these are the people who cannot pay us back. So Jesus is talking about a form of giving and generosity in which we don't expect a return. We can expect a return, but that return comes from God himself. If I'm inviting, constantly inviting you for dinner, then you have to invite me for dinner. And then it becomes a, one of those happy Christian communes again. But here Jesus, the emphasis of Jesus is always going out. And so if we have decided that the world is a dangerous place, which many of us have that feeling, and there's a lot of truth to that. If we believe the world is a dangerous place, then we tend to shrink back and we tend to withdraw because we say to ourselves, the world doesn't appreciate us. The world doesn't understand us. And that, by the way, is the challenge that Israel faces. God made Israel to be a blessing to the nations. That covenant, that calling still exists. It hasn't been canceled. 
But if people misunderstand you and they hate you and they persecute you and they criticize you, even if some of it always, even if some of it is justified, then what do you do? Why would Israel want to be a blessing? Why would Israel want to fulfill its mission? Just like Jonah. Why should Jonah go and preach repentance to the enemies of Israel? Why should Peter go to, go to the Gentiles? Because so many Gentiles misunderstood or did not appreciate or even uh, were prejudiced, hated the, the Jewish people. Why are we going to help them? And that's the same challenge that the church has to this day. We can be like Qumran, or Jesus says we can be, we can be like those who use unrighteous mammon Okay, for the purposes of the kingdom of heaven. We can be engaged in the world. Now this is risky living. To be a disciple of Jesus is a risk. And there's a double risk here. The first risk is to leave the safety of the community, of the church, and to go out and to have a certain amount of openness. You know, if you're Amish or you live in the ultra-Orthodox quarter, of Jerusalem, I can tell you it's a lot safer. You will have, there will be very few divorces. Most of your children will not be drug addicts, okay? You will have many fewer social problems. It's safe. It's a warm cocoon. It's very highly controlled, but it's safe. The minute you say, you know, we have to be engaged with the world, then the world can sometimes come in. And we can end up being addicted to pornography if we're not careful. Or we can end up, being, end up in divorce. Or our children can end up, you know, in, in all kinds of messes for which we will be eternally sorrowful. Yes? It's a risk. But Jesus is saying we have to take the risk because how else are people going to hear about the kingdom of God? How else are they going to hear about the love of God? If we don't engage in the world and develop relationships with people so that we can then share or we can pray or whatever it may be, it won't happen. Yes? It will not happen. Now, if we're going to be engaged with the world, there's also a double risk. The double risk is that we may end up using our wealth, and by the way, it could be a little bit of wealth, could be our pension fund. Uh, we'll end up not using our wealth. We could end up using our position, our status, our place in the world, can easily, we can lose the focus on the kingdom of heaven and it can become an end in itself. And that's why Jesus says, that's why Jesus gives the warning here at the end. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve wealth and you can't serve me. We have to use wealth. Wealth can't use us. We have to use our family position. Our family position can't master us or control us. Okay, 
These things, family, wealth, Jesus has been talking about uh, in the previous chapters of Luke because these are the very things where we get our security as human beings. We get our security from our family and our family honor. We get our security and our identity from not only from our family, but also from our money, from what we have. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, these are things that we use. We use for his sake. And if we use them for his sake, we'll end up being rewarded, maybe in this life, but surely in the life to come. But we must be willing to take that risk. It's a reasonable risk. And on the other hand, we must be willing, we must be careful to safeguard, yes, that uh, our involvement with the world, our engagement with the world, okay, does not entrap us. So we walk on a tightrope, okay? And it's hard to keep the balance. One final word, my dear friends, especially for those of us who live in the Western world. Or we we live in an increasingly secularized society. And in many places, these Western societies are becoming more and more hostile to the gospel. And the easy thing to do is to withdraw and say, I'm going to be in my cozy Christian club. Yes. And uh, we won't let the world in. We certainly aren't going to let any new members in. And we certainly aren't going to engage people. And what what the result has been is that there has been a loss of confidence in the gospel. We have lost the confidence in the gospel. And we have been, because in many cases we're a minority, we have listened to the voice of the majority and accepted their critique. We need to reject that voice and listen to the voice of Jesus. There are plenty of people who are desperate, who are poor, who want help. God has given each of us gifts He's given some of us finances, sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small, and he calls all of of us to be faithful with what he's given us. But the faithfulness has to start spiritually, psychologically, emotionally. We cannot be afraid, and we don't have to shrink back. We do not have to shrink back. There are many people who will, will reject, but there are still desperate people who want to hear the gospel and to want to have their lives redeemed and transformed. My dear friends, let's don't be like the isolationist in Qumran. Let's don't uh, live in our happy world of church suppers and church social events and neglect those who are poor and needy and those who desperately need to hear the message, the redeeming message of the gospel. Father, help us, we pray. We ask that uh, you will give us faith to take a risk to engage in risky living. We pray that you will give us grace to be faithful as we enter into the world, that we will not be seduced by the world, that we will not uh, be overwhelmed by the world and its values. And Lord, we pray that uh, whatever you've given each one of us, 
that uh, you will help us to be good stewards of all that you've given us. So, Lord, that we can glorify you. And uh, on Judgment Day, Lord, each one of us can hear those words, will hear those words, welcome, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.